Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling. If you read the title of today's episode and thought that I was getting a little clickbaity, I wasn't. Today is literally the story of a developer who got a job at a company. He became CTO in the, over the course of six months, and then he bought the company for a dollar. And later he sold it in 2019. Stick around to hear how he managed to pull that off. It's a great conversation with Don Pottinger. And the day after this episode airs, I'll be hosting microconf local in portland oregon if you're in the area i'd love to see you there and then next week we're in boston then austin texas and the week after in dubrovnik croatia if you're coming to any of these events please do come up and say hi i'd love to meet you and if you don't have tickets yet i believe there's still a few remaining you can head to microconf.com and click on our events section to figure out how to buy tickets. Again, the MicroConf locals are one-day events and they're quite inexpensive, so it makes the events really accessible. If you're in the area, I hope to see you there. And with that, let's dive into my conversation. Don Pottinger, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me, Rob. It's a great honor. You have such a story. Oh my gosh. Started as a developer and then you became, was a director of engineering and then the CTO within six months. This was a company you, you came to work for as an employee. And then you later bought the company for a dollar and then you grew it and exited a few years later. I, I've, I don't think I've ever heard a story like this. So this is, it's, it's going to be fun. Can you give listeners a little bit of background about, you know, how you came to work at Kevy and you know maybe what attracted you to that and just get us started on the story because it kind of tells itself from there. Yeah, so before I joined Kevy, I was an aspiring developer and aspiring entrepreneur. I had started a company with my younger brother and we both used that as a catalyst for us to learn how to code. He delved into mobile and I went headfirst into web, learning Ruby, Rails, JavaScript and at a certain point, we realized that we, our growth was stunted because we were self-taught. And I ended up joining a company called Big Nerd Ranch who built apps for clients, both big and small. So I was able to learn on the job of how, you know, how to build products. I spent about a couple years there and I learned a lot through the process. And then I felt like I, I was ready to make the, the leap into the startup world, but I wasn't quite sure how to do it. And I wanted to, I wanted to learn from who I considered one of the best in, in Atlanta at the time. And so I interviewed and joined Kevy, which was um, founded by one of the co-founders of Pardot, which was in a marketing automation platform that they sold for close to $100 million. And when I joined Kevy, my idea was to, to learn, to, to code, and then eventually, hopefully, you know, start a company under that same kind of portfolio of companies that Kevy was under. But it went completely differently from what I expected. Yeah, it, it's a good story too. I, I want to touch on one point that you just made, which was you were self-taught. You wanted to get better, so you got a day job coding 40 hours plus a week. I did the exact same thing. I learned to code as a kid on my Apple IIe, right? I basic. I mean, there was no there was no web at the time. I'm, I'm that old. But I graduated from college with like a computer engineering degree, electrical engineering, and still didn't know how to code for the web. It was like the late 90s and they weren't teaching that because the academy tends to be 
depending on the school, five, 10, 15 years behind, behind actual industry. So I graduated and I started, I was, I was an electrician, I was working construction and I would go to the library and check out books on Perl and PHP and HTML. Cause I was like, the web is the future. com is happening. You know, I lived in the Bay area and I was trying to teach myself. I was doing it nights and weekends and I just was not making progress. And the moment that changed was when I finally applied for a full-time job. And I, I it was the same thing. I worked for an agency and we were building, you know, websites and web apps. And in the first two months, I learned more than I had learned in a year of, tri- of self-study. Yeah. For me, that was a very similar experience. So I went to Georgia Tech. I studied electrical and computer engineering there. My favorite classes were the programming classes, but it was C, C++. Java, if you're lucky. Yeah, Java. There weren't things that were, at the time, you could easily take and build for the web. And so I initially started with PHP on my own basically taking what little code I could find on the internet and basically putting a, you know, doing a hatchet job on it to make it do what I wanted it to do. But it wasn't until I came across Rails and Michael Hartle's Ruby on Rails course, which I'm sure many people have taken, where I built a Twitter clone. And I had no idea what I was doing at the time, but I learned a lot just by typing in the commands. And, you know, eventually when I started building my own things, going back to that tutorial, and seeing how they recommended to do th- certain things. And, and of course, Railscast during that period as well was big. And so that really helped me get in the door at my job, right? Because I joined a company that was a, a Ruby boutique firm. And so they were looking for junior developers with uh, an idea, like they really wanted to learn. And I was able to surround myself with very talented and, and senior engineers that taught me how to take what I'd been doing um, on nights and weekends and turn it into, I considered myself a crafts person at the time. Yeah. And that's a great part of the story, I think, is that just what the web has done for learning technical skills. Because again, I, in 98, I graduated in 1998 from college and there was one website that had tutorials on how to program. Like there, you just couldn't find them, you know? And so when I say I went to the library, no, I literally drove a car, <laughs> got a dead tree book, you know? And, and it's so cool that you have, you had podcasts and video casts and tutorials, you know, just, you can learn incredible amounts. I think it's done, done the wonders for uh, development and entrepreneurship. And if you're lucky, you have a mentor. And so I was lucky that I had a mentor that had been building a company and he told me, hey, stop what you're doing go learn Ruby on Rails and and see where that takes you from there. And to this day, I really, I credit that person for starting me on a journey that I never would have imagined, you know, over 10 years ago now. And so you apply and you get a job at Kevy in December of 2014. And at the time, Kevy was competing with, with Zapier. Is that right? Yeah, they. this was early days. So Zapier and Kevy were competitors in what I would consider that Sending data from point A to point B. I think where Kevy was focused is that they had a lot of e-commerce companies that were trying to send data from their e-commerce platform to a CRM or to their marketing automation platform. And at the time, they were getting customers, but they were also losing customers. So they were really concerned about the churn. I think, you know, after I joined in late 2014, they decided in early 2015 that they wanted to pivot. Got it. And... How big was the team at that time? The team grew to about, I would say, 20 or 25 at that time. Yeah. And when you joined? When I joined, yeah, it was about that big. And we hired several salespeople after me. 
And so the kind of connected, the Zapier approach isn't working because churn's too high. And so talk me through the pivot. I know that was early 2015. Is the pivot what led to you going from software engineer to director engineering to CTO within six months? Yeah, I, I guess if there's, if there's one thing about startups is that things change very quickly. And in this case, the pivot led to the departure of the most senior engineer at Kevi. And so, you know, there were a few other engineers. I was one of them. And at the time, I felt very confident that I could build a greenfield project. You know, I could take something and start from scratch, design it and build it. And so with that opportunity of the pivot where we had to build an entirely new platform, and in this case, we were focused on the e-commerce companies that were our customers, building a platform that allowed them to market directly to their customers in one place, I felt confident that I could I could do that. And so with that, I became the director of engineering and I was doing that for a few months before the there was an engineering, a, a leadership shakeup and I became the CTO about a few months after that. And how did that feel as someone who, I mean, you'd been coding for a couple years at that time professionally? Like that feels like a big responsibility to be CTO at a startup at that early in your, in your career. Yeah, it was. You know, and I had made a pivot myself into software development. Coming out of college, I was a consultant. I worked at Accenture and another mid-sized consulting firm for a few years. So development wasn't my wasn't the first thing I did. I was comfortable talking to teammates, potential customers. Like I felt like I could do sales. So I felt like I was at a point where I had been building up my skills to be multifaceted in, in a way that really benefits you as an entrepreneur. So yeah, it was, it felt really quick. It felt really fast, but I also felt like this is exactly why I joined Kevin in the first place and was to get an opportunity to lead a company. And was I ready? Yes and no. I, uh, I learned a lot through the process. It's not great when you have to let go of teammates, right? Or when you, you you're, trying to sell or you're losing new customers and, and going through all those pain and trying to raise money. But it really was an experience that went trade for, for anything in the world. And that's the beauty of the beauty and the curse of startups is that things change so quickly and there's that upward mobility or just the mobility within an org that can happen. Obviously, those circumstances where it, it was not good, sometimes it's layoffs or whatever, but if you go work for a Fortune 1000 company, the odds of you moving from a software engineer to a director to, a, you know, at some C-level, it just, it's just never going to happen. I understand that, you know, it's different to be a C-level at Target or Best Buy than it is at Kevy when it, it shrinks down. So there is a difference. I'm not trying to equate them, but I do recall also working at small consulting firm, then a small startup myself, and feeling like I was given all these amazing tasks instead of being a little cog, you know, in a wheel that I was actually given a lot more responsibility to just go do it because there were five of us or whatever. So then with Kevy, with the pivot, the product pivot, was there also a round of layoffs? Like did it go from 2025 down or did you, did you keep everybody, all the employees? Yeah. So we had two rounds of, of, layoffs, unfortunately. So once we pivoted, we realized we didn't need a large sales team because there was no product to sell. So we kept a very small sales team and we, you know, were building very quickly, trying to get something that the the, the remaining sales team could put in front of customers, demo and get feedback and, and hopefully sign some deals. But it came to the point where we realized we still needed a little bit more time. And probably the best sales people for our product were, was going to be us, me as the CTO and, and my co-founder, the CEO as well. 
So once we had to make that tough decision, that, you know, it was really hard to, to let go of teammates and people that you've really grown close to. So that was a really hard lesson that not everything is rosy in a startup. Was that one of the hardest pieces for you? Was the kind of the interpersonal, I'm just have, having to let people go who, who you knew were doing a good job, but it was just kind of, at, you know, crazy startup circumstances? Yeah, that was a really hard part. And then I'm grateful that I've maintained relationships with the vast majority of them after that experience. And also the interpersonal relationships of the people that stayed. They, no one really talks about how challenging that can be sometimes. Like there can be friction sometimes between engineering and sales, where sales is wondering, you know, can we sell something like this? And engineering is like, wait a minute, we haven't built that yet. Or, you know, it's going to take time to build that. So that friction existed. Also, trying to keep the people that you did have from looking at other opportunities because, you know, in a startup, it's hard to see the forest from the trees when your head's down working. And so, you know, there can be turnover, there can be other, we were working in a startup kind of incubation space. There are other startups that are vying for really good talent as well. And it's always easy to look, you know, and say, oh, it might be better over there on that, at that other company that seems to be growing very quickly. Yeah, when layoffs happen, that always, I mean, I, recruiters start targeting companies, you know, for the people who are remaining. It's pretty common, common practice. So it sounds like that was brutal. I mean, you go through, it wasn't even a pivot. I mean, you literally threw out the code base and you started essentially from scratch and built a different product, which is, I think you already said it, but a marketing automation platform focused on e-commerce. So you and I are both pretty <laughs> familiar with that. For, folk, for folks who haven't followed my story for a long time, you know, I, I built Drip, which started as an email service provider, eventually became marketing automation provider, like a lightweight marketing automation. And then it was more focused on when I was running it, it was, it was general purpose, really. It was SaaS and bloggers and people with email lists. We, we pulled a lot of people from MailChimp and Infusionsoft and then sold the company in 2016 to Leadpages. And then they, it wasn't even a pivot. It was a focusing, focused on e-commerce companies as well. And so now competing with the likes of what Clavio and oh, MailChimp, as you said, you know, MailChimp has, has really done just a slight focus on that. You mentioned offline that the founder moved essentially to an, uh, like a role as an investor advisor and then a new CEO came in. Is that, did it happen at this point as well, the pivot? So it was a massive shakeup. I mean, it's like a new company with just a handful of people. You were down to like five employees or something, right? Yeah, yeah. It was the new CEO was someone at the company that had been promoted into the CEO role. So she was a young CEO. I was a young CTO. So we were both learning on the fly. And although, you know, I would say we're very ambitious, you know, had delusions of grandeur in some respects. And, you know, uh, we were heads down. We were both very working hard because we thought at the time, like, this is it. This is our this is our opportunity. And we don't want to let our team down. We don't want to let our investor down. And so we I mean, we were working nonstop. At that point, I was working. I can't even remember how many hours, but any time I was in front of a computer, I was probably coding. And I have a family. I have one child at that point. I had a, two more on the way, twin girls on the way at the time. So it was a very uh, busy period. And I assume that MRR went to zero. Yeah. Right? Or approximately. And so that you must have had enough funding in the bank to float you guys for a year or more. Because I think you said you spent the next 18 months building the product, finding customers, growing MRR again. Yeah. 
I think we got it, if I remember clearly, we got a check of about 300000 from the investor. It's kind of like... Here's your shot. Oh, yeah. Honestly, you know, if you think about it, it should have been reincorporated as a new company. The cap table should have been cleared, which I we can talk about the cap table later. But it was, a, it was essentially a new company with the same name. Yeah, let's talk about the cap table because this winds up screwing you guys because you, you start making progress. You spend the next 18 months you get to 250,000 ARR. So you build this thing back up to 20, 20 grand a month and you want to go raise funding and you can't. What, what happened there? Yeah, we would walk into investor meetings and they would be very interested in what we were doing, you know, the space. And we get to due diligence and they take a look at the cap table and see that <laughs> the original founder, along with several other people that were brought on to the company and that had left had big chunks of the company while the CEO and, and CTO, me, had a very small amount of the company. And that raised a lot of questions that caused a lot of trepidation with investors, especially where we were in Atlanta. They were less inclined to take a chance on a very messy cap table. And so, you know, we would go in and feel very optimistic. And a couple weeks later, there were crickets or it was a no because of the the complexities with our cap table, not necessarily what our product was able to do, not exi- you know the customers that in, in the revenue that we've hit. So that was very challenging and, and, and also disheartening because it, it had gotten to the point where we we're like, we're not sure what to do. Do we go back to our original investor and ask for more funds and get further diluted or what? And that led to a, a, another big shakeup um, in the company and uh, around the fall of 2016. And before we get to that, I mean, I want to call out, we have had multiple companies apply to Tiny Seed. We get in conversations with them and we we make them an offer or we want to make them an offer, but we discover that the founder or founders owns a minority share of their own company. And usually it's, in, in the cases we've seen, it's they started the company and there was an investor there who put in a small amount of money. Usually it's like sad. It's like 25 grand or 50 grand and takes 50, 60, 70, you know, it just takes way too much of the company. And when there's nothing there, you can see how that like makes logical sense, but it keeps you from ever raising money again. You know, you can never raise money because investors don't want someone sitting there with the lion's share of the equity. They want the people doing the work to have that. So this is not to say never raise investment. It's to say, be careful about your cap table. Like the founders in an early stage company like this, raising a really a first or a second round, pre-seed and accelerated round to seed round, like the founders should own 80, 90% of the company, you know, between that, if it's one or three or five or whatever. I mean, they should own that together. So it's something to keep in mind for folks because it's, I don't think, I think especially listeners of this podcast, like if you're a bootstrapper, you've never had to think about cap tables because you just always had 100% of it. And the moment that, you know, you do, if you do think about raising a small round, like be really aware that like most, my rule of thumb, and I think the general rule of thumb is in an investment round, you usually sell between 10 and 20% of your company, depending on the amount you decide on evaluation. And then you take, you know, 10% of that, or again, 20, like it's pretty rare. I hear someone selling, unless they're selling their own shares in a secondary, it's rare someone sells more than 20. I see you smiling. Do you, do you have, you know, more, you have stories? No, I, I mean, the experience that I went through, you know, with Kevy really left a bad taste in my mouth for raising money and, I went firmly into, I am going to fully bootstrap everything I do for the rest of my life for a period of time. Only now, the past couple of years, to come out of that and feel like, 
It depends. It really depends on who you are, what your goals are. In my case with Kevy, I didn't really stand a chance because I own so little of the company at the, t- at the time. So I, I just know that being careful and, and understanding who you're bringing on as an, an investor is equally as important as if you decide not to and you want to just continually have a sustainable business as a bootstrapper. And so you've mentioned there was a shakeup in 2016 because you weren't able to raise funds. What happened there? Yeah, so my CEO just left. <laughs> um, oh, man. But to be honest, she had been talking about it for a little while. So it wasn't a surprise for me, but it was a surprise to our investor. I think it shocked him <laughs> to the core because he felt like we were on a, on a positive track. He didn't, kinda, he didn't see that there were any issues outside of continuing to figure out what product market fit and being heads down on selling and also raising money. However, with the departure of, of the CEO, it left him in a kind of a crisis in terms of what to do with the company. It had been, that company had been his baby post his acquisition. But I think at that point he was ready to close up shop, let go of the entire team. Before he did that, he asked me what I wanted to do with the company. Would I, did I want to take over the reins? And I had to give it some thought, but I, I, I think I realized that I would be in a similar situation to the CEO who just left. And so I proposed something completely different. <laughs> I proposed that I would buy the company, the assets from him if he was going to shut it down or if he didn't want to find a new CEO. And he gave it some thought and he agreed to sell it to me for basically nothing, $1, which was just kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. Did this happen in real time? Like, were you sitting in a room looking at each other with this conversation or was it like a back and forth via email that happened over several days? It was in real time. So you can imagine like a scene out of a, out of a movie. If it was dramatized, it, that's how it felt in my mind. We were sitting across from each other and I was really trying to fight for the life of the company. I'd said, please don't shut it down. You know, you can find a new CEO. He wasn't convinced. So I, you know, I was like, well, I want to continue working on it. But I also, I think I phrased it in a way that looking back now, I don't know if it came off the right way. I want to do it without you. And he did some kind of back of the napkin calculation in his mind of in terms of the company's growth, what were the expenses, trying to, I guess, decide what a, what a good asking price would be for the company. But I think he just came to the conclusion that, hey, this, this is really nothing to me, more than, you know, a line item in his portfolio. And for me, it would, it would be kind of life, it was life, life-changing. And so it all happened in one conversation. And then um, after that, we, we got the paperwork and I took a dollar, put it in an envelope and walked over to his desk one day and dropped it off just to make sure that he did receive the dollar for the, for the company. The eyes were dotted. It's like a scene out of an Aaron Sorkin film, man. Yeah, yeah. Better. That's crazy. Well, here's the other thing too. As an investor, he owned, did he own, a, he invested in a lot of companies? Yeah, he did. Uh, okay. So he also probably um, for sure has capital gains that he could then write that off. So he could get at least what, 30 to 40% of it back from the IRS. So I'm not saying that's a good or a bad motivation, but that is why you'll hear some VCs write off. Like if you know, you're familiar with bare metrics, like Stripe Capital or Stripe, uh, whatever the venture arm they had, they just wrote that investment off, you know, to, to nothing. And, and they're able to then, they, they don't get it all back, but you basically don't 
pay the taxes on equivalent gains, right? It's like having a loss in the stock market and a gain that offsets it. So, so that makes sense that he got something out of it. And I imagine if he's trying to think, he's like, what am I going to sell you this? How much am I going to sell this company to you for? And are you going to take out a loan to buy it? You know, I don't know that you were in a cash position to be able to pay whatever, 50 grand or hundred grand, you know? I was not, I was not, I was, I, I was looking for jobs at that point. So it was, it was something that I, I had pretty much decided I was willing to walk away from. But when the opportunity came, I, I decided to take it and, and change the course of my career. Absolutely. The course of your life. Well, what a gutsy move to say, I want to do this, but without you, like that must have, like, was that scary? Are you the kind of person? So that scares me because I'm not super confrontational. And that feels like a very confrontational thing to say. I'm not confrontational at all. I work very well with others because I usually, there's usually not some, anything for me to fight about. And so in this case, I think I felt strongly enough about the company and more so confident in my own abilities because I built it like almost every line of code that was there was written by me or reviewed by me or touched by me. And I'd been in plenty of the sales conversations. I knew how to support the customers. And because of the, the revenue that we were, I felt comfortable. It, it felt like the most comfortable risk I could take at that point because I dreamed of running my own company myself. And, and I de-risked a lot of that for the past 18 months by building it and having someone fund, fund that kind of discovery. It, it felt almost like a no-brainer to at least give it a shot. Yeah. And it was your company in essence. It was as if you and and your CEO, you know, I think you were calling her your co-founder, but like the CEO, you guys had started a new company that should have had a new cap table to the point you made earlier. I can imagine you had massive ownership over this, mental ownership of it, of just like, yeah, there's, this is the thing and I, I can grow it. Like it's my, I hate it when people use the word, it's my baby, but it's, it's pretty like you had spent a lot of time, spent a lot of time working on it. Yeah. And you, and you can imagine too, when you go from being an employee to on paper being CEO and getting an agreement that says, hey, you have X amount of shares and, and trying to do the math on what percentage of the company that is, and then realizing that it's 5%. <laughs> and, and you're like, well, I'm putting all of my blood, sweat and tears for something that I own 5% of. And using terminology like I'm a co-founder was very difficult for me. You know, I had to have people support me and say, yes, you are a co-founder. A lot of people don't understand, especially when you're young and you're being employed, the, the courage and the agency it takes to be able to say, yes, you may have funded this company, but I've, I'm building it. So I, de- I deserve to be a co-founder. I deserve to own a large enough share of the company. And it took me a long time to, to realize that. And I kind of grew into that as after the acquisition, realizing that, hey, this is my company too. Yeah. And so at this point, you own 100% of it, but you don't, I imagine, I mean, you had revenue at this point, but do you, were you break even? Did you need to raise money? Because it sounds like, I mean, you told me offline that you started doing everything yourself, sales, marketing, support, development. Did you have any other team members or were you solo at this point? At this point, I was solo. Wow. Yeah. My initial um, idea was that I was going to just continue growing the company like we were growing previously. And I kind of, I ran into a wall. I ran into, oh, keeping customers is difficult. Acquiring new customers is difficult when you're all by yourself and developing the product simultaneously, you know, all at the same time was very difficult. So I tried to continue working very hard for the first six months after the acquisition. And then I hit a wall where I felt burnt out 
And I had to take a step back and really evaluate, why am I doing this? I have 100% of this company. Am I trying to make it the next billion dollar company? If that's the case, I can't do it by myself. Or am I trying to have a high quality of life? Am I trying to be able to spend as much time as I can with my family, You know, work from anywhere, um, have the ultimate flexibility? Because the revenue was was more than enough for a solo founder and the expenses were low enough that, you know, I was, I was riding on different credits from cloud providers. So I was able to keep expenses pretty low. Yeah. And so you have this, this amazing lifestyle business, this kind of bootstrapper's dream at this point, except for you burn out. <laughs> that was a, that was a problem, right? So when you took that step back, I know you mentioned that you've been a longtime listener of startups for the rest of us. And I, I want to take a moment to talk about like virtual mentorship, because you said that Mike and I chatting together and me talking about burnout and drip or whatever it was I was talking about somehow, you know, helped you on your journey. Yeah, Rob, it was cathartic. <laughs> After spending the entire day working on Kevy, I would fire up the podcast and listen to you and Mike and Mike's journey with Blue Tick. It, it felt like I was in therapy with Mike and, and you and, and, you know, and your journey with, with Drip and post-acquisition. And I was just listening to every single detail, listening to the intonation in your voice, trying to read what you couldn't say sometimes from that. And it was, it was inspiring. It was also felt like I wasn't alone, which, you know, as a solo founder, if you're not really into to communities, online communities, it can be it can be challenging. Luckily, I had a support system that was local, and then also podcasts that I would listen to, like like Startups for the Rest of Us, and that really helped carry me through. And that's great to hear. I mean, you you've heard me say it that like we've done the podcast for almost twelve years now for free, and that's one of the big reasons we do it is because we want to find others like us, and we just want to be able to. It's not even give back, it's just help other people. The amount of, of good I think that is put into the world is is substantial. And it's it's so good to hear because you and I before today have never met. You know, we haven't even barely emailed, you know, just to schedule this. So and yet I was able to have that impact on you. And I hope that th- those who are listening, like we can all we can do that in our own ways, you know. So it's awesome, man. It's great to hear. So okay, so let's go back to the story. So now you own the company, you burn out, but then you you recover. Where, where do you go from here? Because in 2019, then, which was a couple years later, you two or three years later, you wind up selling the company. So, what's the what's the summary of, of that in between? Was it more of the same? But were you lifestyling? Did you start hiring people when you sold? Were you solo? You know, what what are the details there? Yeah, it's a mix of I was lifestyling almost to a fault in some ways. I was I think things had grown stagnant. I gravitated toward what was interesting to, for me to work on, like product. I loved building. And I would let things like marketing, yeah, I'll get to that eventually. And I would do sales when inbound sales would come in. I would do demos. I would follow up, close the deals, things like that. And I brought on different people at different points. So I brought on a salesperson that was you know, working on doing demos, cold outreach, things like that. It didn't really work out that well. And then around the tail end, probably about a year before I sold the company, a friend of mine who's a data scientist, he was working on a startup. He said, well, you know, you're a data scientist. I'm sitting on a lot of data right now with Kevy, e-commerce behavioral data. Maybe we can build something of value for our customers, for the Kevy customers, using your, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning knowledge. And so we started collaborating and we started building new, exciting, what we called smart features for Kevy. Things like being able to 
tell you what how effective your email will be based on the subject the subject line. And eventually the plan was we would get give you the ability to write your entire email without having to do it yourself based on your, your previous emails, based on emails that have been effective in the past. And so we were building and building and building that. And then I think in December of 2018, my wife shared that she's pregnant and it's our fourth child. And up until that point, my wife had been working enough as a, she's a nurse practitioner, she'd be working enough to provide health insurance for us so that we didn't have to worry about at least that part of, with me being an entrepreneur. And you got to the point where she's like, well, I think we need to make a change because I don't want to work full time anymore. And I said, okay, well, I can at least put out some feelers and see, you know, what, what's out there. And a friend from Google reached out to me and I ended up getting, you know, a job at Google and running Kevy at the same time. And so that was in April of 2019. So there was a period of time where I was, I decided I wanted to sell Kevy, but I was working, I was working out at Google. And so I got a broker and I was talking to potential acquirers, you know, some were serious about acquiring, but they wanted me to join as well. And um, I had to share with them that I wasn't on the table as part of the acquisition. And then eventually I found a venture studio that had a similar SaaS product, a SaaS product in the similar space. And they were really interested in acquiring. They had the technical chops to be able to take over the project. They had aspirations for the sales and marketing as well. And uh, after due diligence, I ended up closing the deal. So I literally signed the papers to sell Kevy in the hospital after my wife gave birth. So it was kind of a crazy, uh, crazy period there. Sounds insane, man. I was going to say good timing, but probably terrible timing because I imagine that was stressful coming up. And so, you know, the question that I usually ask here is, there's life-changing money, which to some people, oftentimes that's a few hundred thousand dollars, you know, and then there's uh, never have to work again money, sunset money, right? Which is usually for most people, depending on where you live, it's several million dollars, right? And there's in-betweens, I mean, whatever, but how would you describe the, your exit? It was life-changing, you know, it's not never have to work again, but I think for me, letting go was hard because like we said, it, it was my baby. I would work on it for the next several years and it may not go anywhere. It may not grow. And in some respects, the, the competition at the time, like Clavio and, and MailChimp and other companies had exploded in growth. They had deep pockets. They'd been working extremely hard on developing and improving their product. And I didn't have that in me as a solo founder. Uh, it was very difficult. So it was great timing. And it was also um, a life-changing amount of money that I earned by signing, signing a piece of paper. So it was, it was a life-changing experience to, to own and run Kevy. But I think it was great to close that chapter so that I can begin a new chapter with new, new projects and new endeavors. And with a new, a new child who is a new project for kids, that's, that, that's another level, man. It's another level. And so you're, you're a glutton for punishment like most of us. I mean, as, as we move towards wrapping up, I am intrigued because you've, you've launched another, I'll just say, a, a startup. And it's essentially, it's, but it's a B2B play. I'm sorry, it's a B2C play. It's called Lengua Talk at languatalk.com. And you mentioned to me before hit record that it grew very quickly. You launched in January, so you're maybe what eight or nine months ago, and you're already at mid six figure ARR with it. You know what's the difference there? There's so many differences. One, 
I have a committed co-founder who has grown and built a company in this space before. Uh, so during some of my lonely periods, I would roam indie hackers and look at posts. And my co-founder, before he was my co-founder, had a post of, hey, I have a business. It, it pretty much runs itself. So if any other indie hackers want some help on some marketing, just reach out. And I was like, all right, sure, I'll reach out. So I reached out and he did, he did some work for Kevy. And we stayed connected for the next couple of years. And after I sold Kevy and I was kind of bored at the day job, just kind of dreaming about what to build next, we reconnected. And I said, you know, that platform that you've built, you're a great marketer. You know this space very well, but I think I could help you build something that, that we could grow to even higher heights. And he thought about it. He's like, are you serious? Aren't, shouldn't you be comfortable and like done? And, and do you have the, do you have the capacity and the time to do this? And I was like, no, I don't, but we, I'll do it. Let's do it. And, uh, we, we started building last year and it took me longer than I expected. I didn't expect my, my building skills to atrophy as much, but we launched in January. And because my co-founder had been in the space before, he kind of knew all of the, the knobs, the marketing, the timing, the ads, and me from the technology side we had everything buttoned up. And so it's been really amazing to go from literally zero dollars in revenue to mid, you know, six figures in ARR. So it's it's really exciting because it's only, it's very early days and we've only launched probably about five languages and we're planning on launching several more in the coming weeks. Good for you guys. You know, I you don't know if it's being a second time entrepreneur because that's got to have something to do with it. All the years of struggle. It's like the Beatles in the Cavern Club for four years playing, you know, 10 hour sets and stuff. It's like, no wonder they got good. It's like you went through a, a, a gauntlet, you know, and you came out the other side and you sold your company. And I do it a second time. Like, I do find that I can get what used to be a day's work for me, eight hours a day. I can often get that done in one or two now. I'm, I'm more efficient. I'm more effective. I'm better at delegating. I'm just more everything. And I, I feel like that happens with a lot of us, you know, smart folks like yourself who are learning. It does. And I know when to walk away. I think um, when I was early on in my career, I would sit there in front of the computer, banging my head across, like, why can't I fix this bug? Or why can't I solve this problem? And now I know that if I walk away, I go to sleep, you can solve things with a fresher mind, or you solve things in your sleep as well. So you learn through the pain and, and that muscle memory is still there. If you decide to go back to it and and also, I think going with the tide is important, right? Building a platform that helps people learn languages over tools like Zoom in the midst of a pandemic. I think, you know, that timing is important as well. So you, you have to do the work, but I think you also have to, to pick the right space and also have the, the right timing too. I'm quickly Googling your Twitter handle because I always say people's, or is there a, a particular thing, you have a website or Twitter that you'd like me to plug? Of course, if you're interested in learning a language, languagetalk.com. Um, my Twitter is Don Pottinger, first name and last name. Awesome, sir. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks again to Don for coming on the show. And thank you for being a loyal listener and coming back every week. If you're not already subscribed, please do hit that subscribe button. And if you haven't checked out the MicroConf YouTube channel, that's something we continue to invest in. And we just hit 9,000 subscribers, I think 300,000 views since we launched it just over a year ago pretty popular youtube.com slash microconf and like every week i'll be back in your earbuds again next tuesday morning